0: Coming up this hour, we have some headlines for you, and then we're joined by the one and only David French. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we are so glad you are with us today. Did you know you can find us all over the place? Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash Common Good, Instagram, and Twitter at common good talk and wherever it is that you prefer to listen to podcasts, If you wouldn't mind subscribing rating, reviewing helps us out a whole bunch. And we know plenty of you already have, and our proverbial hats are off to you, even though I don't think either of us are wearing hats, but uh, it is Monday. (laughs) I think that's what, I think that's what it is. I think that's what you say every Monday. It's Monday. It's Monday. It happens to be again. (laughs) I I think you do that on Fridays too. It's Friday it's weekend is here. um i wanted to dive into some headlines the way we often uh will start a show with not a lot of commentary necessarily just some stories that i thought were either interesting or timely before we get into that though brian on a scale of uh one to ten how you you feeling right now
1: oh i'm good today i i'd give myself an eight yeah it was a good weekend and uh other than a little bit of You know, uh, what's happening in our world with COVID right now? I I think I'm good. Uh, How about you? How are you doing today? (laughs) I like that you summarized our pandemic. Other than a little of what's going on with COVID, I'm doing great. <laughs> That's really funny. I think what I meant more of is like, are things about to close down? What's about to happen? But yeah, yeah it's the like being, stuff in, being in the middle
0: of a war and be like, hey,
1: other than these bombs exploding <laughs> all over my head, I'm doing guilty. pretty good. I'm
0: doing guilty. I think of the, uh, the Larry David, the pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I actually gotten a Larry David uh, gif off with somebody on Twitter over the weekend, so that was exciting. Um, maybe maybe I'll tell that story later (laughs) Uh, real quick All right, so I got a couple of links in here and Mm -hmm. I snuck in one negative one but for the most part we're starting off the Monday positive because it's Monday like you were saying it's rough out there Uh, so I'm going to let you choose which one of these you'd like to dive into first
1: yeah at the Christian Post it says this small Christian colleges set attendance records despite the pandemic I was really surprised to read this it said uh, a couple different surveys, but one of them out of the Church of Christ, it says five out of the 10 Church of Christ affiliated universities have record enrollments this fall, yeah. uh, as do several other primarily undergraduate United States schools, emphasizing on-campus instruction <laughs> while upholding biblical inerrancy. That is quite the mouthful right there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, also uh, reporting record enrollments were Dort College, Bethany Lutheran College, Milligan, Milligan University. Uh, and another list, Colorado Christian University Arizona Christian University. And I just found this interesting because you just figure uh all colleges are going to be down right now because uh people why would you want to go remote or it just feels dangerous and risky or not worth your money right now. Uh and they 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 give a couple different reasons. I, I I don't really know whether they're right or not, maybe because these these schools are going in person and we're going to kind of keep doing the norm. Or maybe people just trust smaller Christian schools more right now than larger state schools. I don't know the reasoning, but I was surprised to read this article.
0: And uh, it is worth saying, too, my seminary, Emmanuel, is linked to Milligan. And uh, we had Lauren Gullett on a a couple of weeks ago talking about the school. If you have any, you know, I don't know, questions about the school, come on and uh, (laughs) hit us up on Facebook. I would be happy to provide some information. Coming up next, this one, I do need to preface it. Um, This is not a partisan position. This one's more about just. I mean, why not 2020? This is exactly. a story we've already recently <laughs> covered a little bit, but it has some puns kind of snuck in. So it's uh, here's, well, here's the headline from obscure to sold out. The story of four seasons, total landscaping in just four days. I, I've seen so many people create their own T-shirts and bumper stickers, but here's how it starts. <laughs> uh, four seasons, total landscaping wants to make America rake again. <laughs> Just a day after the Philadelphia family business became the unlikely backdrop for a uh, belligerent Trump campaign press conference, I should admit, I guess this is from NPR, its owners cashed in on the viral fame and even crossed party lines. On Sunday night, the company rolled out a line of T-shirts, hoodies, and stickers featuring the slogan, Lawn and Order. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. So, on Monday, it started offering face masks as well. By Tuesday, everything had sold out. Again... I re- I really mean this. I'm not looking to weigh in on any kind of partisan perspectives here. I just thought, what a bizarre, yeah. weird story that's perfect for this year. And I I don't I don't know anything about you know the company or the family that owns it, but I I saw this and I thought, ah, eh, good for you guys. Like, well, you know, making making the best of a weird situation.
1: This is uh, one thing is it's capitalism at its finest, right? <laughs> right here. Sure. And it is. It's just like you said, so 2020 right now that you just whether you're a Republican, Democrat, whatever you thought of the press conference in front of them, it's just hilarious. And so yeah. it's good. The next one is uh, an interesting one uh, out of Reading, California, says Bethel Church pastor who prophesied Trump win posts apology video, then takes it down. So Bethel, one of their senior associate leaders by the name of uh, Chris Valatin. Uh, He took to Instagram after the election with a really kind of an open apology. He said about his prophecy about Donald Trump winning. He said, I was wrong. I take full responsibility for being wrong. There's no excuse for it. I think it doesn't make me a false prophet, but it does actually create a credibility gap. And a lot of people trust me, trust my ministry. And I want to say I'm very sorry for everyone who put their trust in me, Valentin said on his Instagram account. Uh, And so uh, it goes on to tell that that Bethel, one of their senior leaders, Benny Johnson, who is married to their to the guy who started the whole thing, Bill Johnson, uh, came out almost in the opposite way and said, Nope, we're still fighting. And then uh uh maybe related, maybe unrelated. A couple of days later, Chris Valatin took down his post and said, after doing a lot more research, I decided to wait until the official vote count is complete. And so uh I, I read this and, and was just found it a little interesting because we did do a lot of stories of people like prophesying about President Trump and wondering what's going to happen if he loses. And uh, this is the first one I saw. And I also find it, uh, I don't know if surprising or just interesting that he's since taken it down. But I wonder if there'll be more people who are like, no, uh, I said, you know, I got a word from the Lord that President Trump was going to win if he indeed this kind of plays out that uh, Biden wins uh, and it gets, you know, it becomes more and more official and more and more concrete. Uh, if some if there'll be more apologies like this, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah,
0: time will tell, man. There probably is a, a whole segment in there somewhere about yep. prophecy and yep. religious leaders weighing in and then retracting and how all of that, especially with the sort of televangelist wave we seem to be in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so we're gonna pull out of that to a couple more promising ones. This one from Relevant: Another COVID nineteen vaccine is showing some very promising early potential. Uh, last mm-hmm. week, the Pfizer. Pfizer announced that it's COVID-19 vaccine was showing promising early signs of effectiveness. Now, Moderna has joined the chat. Data released by the pharmaceutical giant suggests that their vaccine is 94.5% effective against the virus in early tests, making them the second U.S. company to achieve a remarkably high success rate. The rest of the article kind of goes on to explain all of that. But, I mean, am I naive to be encouraged by that?
1: Not at all, because, again... uh you and I are a few degrees short of our medical degree, or a few credits short of our medical degree. Yeah, but case, case right in point, yeah. when I turned on the Today Show today, right, they were interviewing Dr. Fauci, and he was kind of uh, over—not overly, but like he was just super excited about this. And so yeah. when I see people in the profession whose livelihood is behind these kinds of things uh, speaking about with this with excitement, I go, okay. When when I hear Dr. Fauci saying uh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and it might be closer than we think. I go, OK, I could use some good news because, you know, there's an article I was reading today about the long, dark winter that's coming. And, and, yep. and uh, that's a bad thing. But to go hey, there might be a light at the end of the tunnel because of these two vaccines that have turned out good. I, I'm, I'm going uh, I'm going to be uh, excited about that. Yeah, agreed.
0: All right, so we're almost out of time, Brian, but why don't you tell us briefly about this last one?
1: Yeah, Denison Forum. We've uh, Jim Denison on now a couple of times. Uh, he posts an article that we talked about the other day from the Good News Network. Uh, he wrote an article about it. I'm your dad forever. Single dad who adopted five siblings says what we all need to hear. That whole saying of I'm your dad forever and how it must have. His name's Robert Carter, how it had to have just changed the lives of these five siblings who would no longer be separated. I, I love what Jim did with this because he not only said, isn't this a good news? Isn't this a cool story? But said, that's just a line that we all need to hear. I'm your dad forever. A Good work here from Jim Dennison.
0: Yeah, highly recommend you go and read it. I know that I mentioned it 12 times a show, but it is on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Dennison is just brilliant. Check out his whole blog. But this one in particular just kind of uh, hit all the feels, Brian. And uh, I can't recommend enough. Have a tissue ready. Just there was. Yes. But it, it is a remarkable story. And he does a great job with it. Coming up next. Man, oh man, am I pumped. Attorney, political commentator, and author David French is going to be with us here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You know the drill. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I won't bore you with all the details. You can just Google us if you like. Any interaction is good interaction, and we're grateful for that. And I got to be honest, I am thrilled beside myself almost (laughs) to have for the rest of the hour attorney political commentator and author david french welcome to the show sir well thanks so much for
2: having me i really appreciate it
0: it's our pleasure i I already told you off air that we we owe you some money because a lot of our segments (laughs) tend to be real david french heavy but for those who are maybe new to the show would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience
2: yeah um i'm a senior editor at the new uh media startup called The Dispatch, a new media startup, uh, thedispatch.com. I'm a columnist for Time Magazine. Uh, I'm a veteran. I'm formerly at National Review. So that's kind of the political side of my life. Um, More importantly, I'm a Christian. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I've got uh, a great, wonderful wife named Nancy and three awesome kids. And we live in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, Mm -hmm. So I am in the middle of uh, unlike a lot of folks who are in the media i'm smack dab in the middle of red america um, <laughs> and, and that's that's where i grew up that's where i was born raised grew that's up great. as i like to say come by my southeastern conference football fanaticism honestly <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. that's fantastic. That's I was born weird.
2: in alabama lived in louisiana tennessee and kentucky
1: so there you oh, go gosh kidding. yeah <laughs> wow uh, so, David, obviously, we read, as Ian said, a lot of your stuff are centered specifically around politics, and we tend to resonate a lot with it. Now, I just want to ask you when we knew you're coming on, if if you'd uh, if we could go to Time Machine back in October, uh, let's say we we're back in October. I should say we, we came up to now. Would you be surprised by what's happening right now? We're a week or two out from the election. Would you be surprised by what's currently going on? And then I'd ask you after that, how do you think this all ends when it finally all ends?
2: Yeah. So I will say I was surprised and I shouldn't have been. (laughs) Um, so, so here's what happened. Um, so I've, I've been writing a ton about how deep seated American polarization is that Mm -hmm. we, we are not in an atmosphere where people even try to persuade each other very much anymore, as opposed to sort of mobilize against the opposition, how we're very, very closely divided, how those divisions are rooted very deeply emotionally, uh, They're rooted very deeply politically. And 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 then I sort of looked at these, you know, 538 polling averages and I looked at the real clear politics polling averages and I went, oh, maybe this is going to be a landslide. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I should have known, of course, it's not going to be a landslide, because what I know about the deeper facts of American life and the deeper divisions that that sort of at least for the time being, that sort of landslide reality is kind of off the table. And mm. so I was surprised by the closeness of the election, which was on me. That was dumb because I knew better. I, I wrote a book about how deep-seated American polarization is. So it's like, you've heard physician heal thyself, or read thyself. There you and, go. And so that, that should, did surprise me. It shouldn't surprise me. But once we, once the election was over and the closeness of the outcome was apparent, Nothing has surprised me since nothing. Mm. No, not, not the prevalence of the of the fraud allegations and, Mm. and not the president's behavior. Um, nothing, nothing has surprised me.
0: Mm. You wrote an article back in July that I've, I don't think I've sent an article to more people than this one. And the headline is America is in the grips of a fundamentalist revival, but it's not Christian. And there there's there's too many good nuggets in it for me just to kind of pull them out now. But I I would love for you to take a minute or two. Like, what do you what do you mean by that? And, And what would you is there anything you'd change about it now in November from when you wrote it back in July?
2: Yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is something it was based on, uh, I kind of had this sudden realization as I was beginning to see uh, the rise of a a lot of the um, particularly intolerant um, attitudes on the illiberal left. Hmm. And, and what I, as I was looking at this, I was saying, oh, I I understand this. And this is sort of long how I've uh, processed through a lot of illiberal movements on the right and the left in the U S it's like, Oh, and I, I tweeted, you know, it's, I don't think you can really fully understand what's going on on the more radical quarters on the right or more radical quarters on the left, unless you've had either experience or knowledge of fundamentalism hmm. of religious fundamentalism. And, and I know there's like all kinds of of definitions and theological explorations, of what fundamentalism is, but the way I kind of, Described it in the context of my own experience is that fundamentalism is a worldview that lacks any existential uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a worldview that lacks any real sense of meaningful doubt. And then, when your worldview lacks any sense of meaningful doubt, you often fail to understand disagreement. You also you often ascribe the worst possible motives to disagreement, Mm -hmm. and you fail to see any value at all in dissenting ideas are dissenting speech in fact it, they're 100% threatening hmm. because what they are they could potentially do is persuade people away from the worldview you have that you are certain is correct in all of its particulars hmm. and if that sounds sort of like a, a an extreme or an uncharitable reading of sort of the way the extremes of our politics have uh, are approaching the world i think if you if you see how the extremes of our politics are manifesting themselves if there's one thing they lack it's the slightest bit of sort of doubt about the the not just the truth of their beliefs but the virtue of their beliefs and mm-hmm. and i talked about how you know you can be a small low orthodox christian or you can be a um you know uh pronoun use proper pro, you know pronoun using secular progressive that's as as liberal as liberal can be But when you have that bit of existential uncertainty, when you have that sense of doubt that Mm. in this complex world with so many moving parts that I think I know what's right, but I could be wrong (laughs) with when you have that, it tempers your engagement almost by necessity because it it creates a sense of openness. When you don't have that, it puts a much harder edge on your engagement. And so that that's why I I brought it up like that is that I feel like that what we have is sort of a fundamentalist awakening both on the illiberal left and the maga right and mm-hmm. on the maga right it's it's kind of syncretistic it's it's connected and intertwined with christianity but it is not it is not a fundamentalist christianity it's a fundamentalism located in politics
1: mm-hmm. About a month or so ago, I listened to you on the Ezra Klein podcast. I'd encourage people to go out there and listen to that particular episode. You were talking, you and Ezra were talking about polarization uh, and and some of the ways you see it the same and see it differently. Uh, Could you help our audience and myself understand better why are we so much more polarized or are we more polarized now than we used to be? And if we are, if I'm right, then what what has kind of happened that we are this much more polarized now than we've ever been before?
2: Yeah, so – you know, it, whenever you're talking about we're mo- we're worse than we were on anything, there's going to be somebody who's going to raise their hand and say, oh, well, actually, <laughs> we, you know, there's this moment in history and this moment in history. So I try to be careful and I want to say we're more polarized than we've been in modern times. You know, obviously, 1860, 1861, we were more polarized. Uh, election of 1876, more polarized. I mean, you can go down the line to other parts of American history where you can say we're more polarized. Hmm. But what we are is, more polarized than we've been in modern times. And it's a particular kind of polarization. It's called negative partisanship or negative polarization. And and what that means is we tend to be on our tribe, in our tribe, not because we love our tribe's ideas, but because we fear or despise the other tribe. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a Republican, you're a Republican, not so much because there's this list of platform ideas that you love, but because you really don't like the Democrats. And your candidate no matter whatever that candidate's flaws, they have one overriding virtue, and that's they're not the other guy. Hmm. <laughs> and yeah. and so what we are, have is a situation where this this negative partisanship is brought about by huge tidal forces in our culture. So it's not like you can just sit there and say, "Well, if we had a better media, this would be different," or right. you know, if if only the liberal media more respected people of faith more, if only people of faith spent more time in liberal media, you know, whatever, whatever your little. Your idea of what's wrong with media or what's wrong with politics is sort of a drop in the ocean of what's going on culturally. And what I try to do in, in my book is I, I try to show how m- these multiple factors, whether it's geographic separation called the big sort after a 2009 book by Bill mm-hmm, Bishop, mm-hmm. which means that we're clustering in communities of like mind. And that leads to something called group polarization, where when like-minded people gather, they get more extreme. Hmm. That leads to an inability to communicate with each other. It means that we often don't even spend time on the same kinds of media. Right. So whether it's politi- by politics, we're clustering together. By religion, we're clustering together. By the, the entertainment we watch, we're clustering together. I, I talk about how um, if you look at TV, watching maps, The shows, the popular shows, often divide their viewers. Divide by the same kinds of partisan maps you see on election night. So, you know, a popular show, one of the most popular shows in the U.S. was Game of Thrones. But if you looked at the Game of Thrones viewer map, it was the Hillary Clinton 2016 map. If you if you're looking at a a different competing, very bloody show, it was Walking Dead. You know, this sort of love letter to the Second Amendment, and it it (laughs) is the red voting map. And so all of these things are happening at once. They're such tidal forces. They're so huge that when we kind of look at how we're going to solve it, like where things like a better media or a unifying politician, they feel like weak forces against the stronger forces. Mm
0: -hmm. One of the the things that I've been fascinated by, and again, Brian and I are, are pastors, so we often kind of get caught in the middle. Sometimes people's Feedback is like you're a pastor. Why are you bothering to talk about things like justice or politics? You should just speak on spiritual things. That's often kind of the Mm -hmm. criticism. But I feel like there's two sides of my newsfeed right now. One side is saying, "Can't can't we just be kind to one another?" Like I think of Samuel (laughs) Johnson, right? Like kindness is possible even when fondness is not. And then the other side is saying, "No, there's this is no time for decency or kindness or or dare I say unity." You actually wrote an article about a year ago, year and a half ago decency is no barrier to justice or the common good. Right. I don't just like that title for obvious reasons, but like <laughs> I'd be curious to you know, what do you mean by that? And and how is that possible? How, how can we maybe return to a sense of civility or decency in the name of unity, even amidst our differences?
2: Well, you know, it, that's a really good question. And if you figure it out, I'd love to. It uh, you know, look, I mean, part of it is, so a lot of my writing is aimed at a Christian audience and so I'm right. I'm writing with people who uh not all of it but a lot of it especially I have a Sunday newsletter that is um much more I'd say disproportionately read by a religious audience and so when it comes to concepts like decency or kindness or civility one of the things I argue is that look these when it comes to a a person's uh Christian walk their walk of faith these virtues are not Tactics, their commands—that hmm. the the—it's the, not sort of the biblical mandate is not to love your enemies unless you're going to lose an election, <laughs> or bless those who are going to persecute you unless they're the libs and they're in an Ivy League university. You know, right, it's not—it's right. not conditional. It's an it, these are command commandments, and so your political activism, your commitment to justice, doesn't waver. But the means of pursuing justice have to be tempered by these moral values hmm. um and and so you know, I think often of Micah six eight what does the Lord require of you, O man? what is good? It is to act justly there's that pursuit of justice, but also to love kindness or love mercy, depending on the translation, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. so there you both have both sort of means and ends wrapped up in interlocking obligations. the hmm. end is justice, the means you're achieving justice in part through mercy and humility. And so when you speak of that into a a religious audience, what you're really trying to do is sort of appeal to deep moral values that they often integrate into their personal lives, into their family lives, even to their business lives, but have left on the sidewalk when it comes to politics.
0: Hmm.
2: Now, when you're talking into secular, much more secular audiences who aren't aren't tracking biblical command, biblical commands. Well, you know, I think that's when you're sort of saying, you know, you're kind of applying a misery principle here hmm. that um, what we are doing is immiserating us as a people, hmm. it's harming us, it's hmm. hurting us. And that the reality is this quest to dominate your op- opposition, this quest hmm. to sort of drive them from the land, and to salt the earth so that they cannot rise again is a, it's futile it's mm. futile that in the united states of america there's going to be persistent deep disagreement pluralism is a fact of life and we either can adopt our polity our politics to a uh, to the pluralism that's going to exist, or we can fight against the existence of that pluralism mm. and either fracture our nation or certainly, in the most extreme version of it, or certainly immiserate our nation and in, 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 uh, make our politics toxic. And so there are really just sort of different approaches to the same mm-hmm. problem, defin- depending on the
1: the audience. Yeah. Last week we we talked about your post. Uh, it was entitled "May God Bless President Biden." And then in the article, you talk about how in 2016 you wrote a similar one: "May God Bless President Trump." Hmm. And uh, that seems a bit of a base level deal, right? To pray the God's blessing yeah. for our presidents. My guess is it didn't go over very well in some circles. Woo. And, and <laughs> I would love to know. I would love to know the response, right, to what you did here, and how discouraging is that to you as a believer, as a Christian to get pushback to something that most of us pastors would say is pretty base level. Pray God's blessing for our president or our president elect.
2: Yeah. Um, I was actually, I knew it would be bad. I didn't <laughs> know it would be as bad. No, bad. <laughs> and, wow. and I'm, I'm used to blowback. I mean, I'm used to really negative um, especially in the age of Trump. I'm used to very, very, very um, toxic responses mm. And sometimes filtering into their offline and into the real world. And, and, uh, but I, I, I can think of all of the things I've written for the dispatch since I've come to the dispatch, that was by far the m- most poorly received as far really? as nope, in, kidding. in the context of, of, of direct immediate angry personal correspondence without wow. question. Wow. And, it, it, surprise, it does not surprise me but it doesn't it doesn't mean it's not very disappointing that that's mm-hmm. the case um because the what what I was talking about is if we have an imperative a command of praying for our leaders which we do <laughs> what does that really mean it doesn't mean support them in all of the particulars of their policy it doesn't mean that it's not incompatible. Praying for your leaders is not incompatible with that command to seek or act justly. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, part of it, and I even had a, a you know, I sort of, here's how I pray or pray for leaders is mm. praying that their just initiatives, their virtuous initiatives would prosper and their unjust initiatives would fail. Um, so you're not praying in all particulars, but, you know, you are, you are seeking, you know, you, you are seeking that God's will will prevail and you are seeking that justice will prevail and you know, um, you know, the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. And yet the idea that you would have any good wishes or goodwill towards but Joe Biden at all, that was the part that was offensive to people. Wow. That he's a horrible human being and how dare you express sort of any sort of, Desire that God would bless him. How dare you! Wow. And that that was the reaction. It was very strong. Not everybody. There were a lot of people who said, you know, thank you for this. Okay, this is this helps put in context what I'm, you know, what I should do. hmm. But this it sort of shows the sheer anger when Hmm. when Donald Trump won in 2016. I had opposed Donald Trump, but I wanted those. I wanted his heart to turn towards God. I wanted his plans that were virtuous and just to prevail. I wanted his plans that were unjust to fail. Very similar kind of, a very similar construct. I, almost identical construct is w- were my desires. But a Trump supporter would read something that said, I want to pray for President Trump and say, hmm. yay. And I got blowback from the other side. You know, this guy's hmm. a monster. He's horrible. Hmm. And so there's just that, that, personal animus towards the politician is so strong that the idea that they could do anything that they could that should either could or should succeed hmm. is an anathema to some people right and and that you know that's very disappointing and i think it's outright dangerous to see it spread mm-hmm.
0: well david just to say it out loud to what i mentioned already brian and i are incredibly appreciative for your voice your perspective it, it is honestly a lot of the Heartbeat behind our show, and we often catch blowback from both sides, and that's sure. we get that that's kind of the nature of of the platform. But in, in September, you actually debated uh Eric Beattaxis, and the question was, should Christians vote for Trump? And you you distilled your opening argument to a phrase that I I just have not been able to get out of my head, and it's character is destiny. Could you unpack that a little more for people who maybe aren't familiar with it or haven't haven't seen it? What do you mean by character is destiny
2: yeah you know and i i use that phrase and it's one that i think the first time i saw that particular phrase was actually from my colleague jonah goldberg Mm -hmm. and and um so what i what the phrase is designed to do is to accurately rebut this notion that we saw in the uh, during the clinton era for example when the monica lewinsky scandal was in full cry right and what we've also seen in the trump era and that is this idea that there is this bright line between character and and policies mm-hmm. that you can have a horrible person a terrible human being but so long as they sort of check the box on various policies they're going to you know lower the tax rate or they're going to increase the defense budget that that the policies can sort of be a firewall against character. Well, that's something that if I would to say that to you about, say your boss at work, it would feel weird Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. uh, if your boss is continually lying, your boss is acting unstable. If he's losing his, uh, his temper, the fact that he's also approved a pretty nice product rollout does not mean that everything's okay. Mm -hmm. And, that in fact it can create the character can create a crisis all on its own and and what I was saying is that because there is not a bright line between character and policy and character in fact can shape policy uh, to a great deal that this idea that you just don't want to talk about Trump's character and we shouldn't talk about it was a false construct and so I you know one of the best examples of that was trump's decision once he learned about the severity of the coronavirus and covid nineteen to lie to the American people about its severity and prevalence and to to distort and to and to essentially uh, mock in in many contexts wearing masks for example that was where his bad character his desire to sort of um make people believe things are better than they are to try to work on the stock market to Be seen as some sort of strong individual and who despises weakness had ripple effects throughout our nation and our culture that have actually cost lives. You know this this diminish uh, this this attitude that diminishes the severity of the coronavirus or mocks mask wearing. These things are actually dangerous to people's lives, much less also dangerous to the prosperity of our nation because our economy is never going to fully recover until we get the coronavirus under control, and so. This was a direct example of where character influenced the a way we live. Another good example of that is the inflammatory way in which he responded after the george floyd killing and you know the way in which his police attacked peaceful protesters to clear the way for him to wave a Bible in front of a church where incidentally the actual clergy of the church were chased off away from their own church for this photo op right and and these things have an effect that you just can't wave away by saying, oh, they're just mean tweets or, oh, he's a little rude. No, these things have an actual effect on the United States of America. Hmm. Uh,
1: David, are you hopeful that we can uh, uh, turn this around as a nation that will be less polarized in the future? And then on top of that, ask this, what is the opportunity you see for the church going forward? Uh, What is the opportunity uh, for the church to help bring healing into our nation?
2: Yeah, you know, as far as hopeful, um hope is a strong word. I, <laughs> I would say in the short to medium term, there are not there aren't very strong forces that are pushing back against the the negative polarization that I described. I mean there 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 is some there's some seeds of hope. There are a lot of people who are beginning to wake up that this is a problem and we need to do something about it. So there's seeds of hope, but I think Right now, the forces sort of driving us apart are really, really strong, but that doesn't mean they're going to last forever, and that doesn't mean that, that they're irresistible. That these forces are irresistible. Um, you know, there there is a, a point at which Americans may get miserable enough to where they they reverse course rather decisively, and there's examples of that in American history uh, of where the American people kind of move, not as not in unanimity but as a group, hmm. and um, it is. It is a, um, so there's always hope. It's just, if you're looking at sort of all of the the realities of our culture and politics, it doesn't look good in the near term. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the other, the, I would say what's interesting, though, is there was this interesting dynamic that's come out of 2020 that's kind of been lost in the, that's been really lost in all of the, um, in all of the furious argument about the legitimacy of the election. And this, right. what's really interesting about 2020 is you had massive mobilization by both sides, massive, to an extent that we've not seen in American history. And neither side triumphed, but each side won an important victory. Hmm. And so, you know, the, obviously Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, but there was no blue wave What it sort of did was show that even if everyone is at maximum effort and mobilization, the difficulty of sweep, it is intensely difficult to sweep the field of your opponents. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. And the sooner we recognize that reality, that there's no way to mobilize our team to dominate and destroy the opposition, at least anytime soon, the quicker we're going to realize that maybe we should stop trying to, for example, destroy our opponents. And start trying to instead of choosing to dominate, start trying to as much as possible accommodate, start trying Mm. to turn the temperature down Mm. on politics, because you just had maximum effort of both sides. And it reminded me of like and I use this analogy in Time magazine of trench warfare, political version of trench warfare, where, you know, the two sides would pour maximum effort and like move the lines a couple of kilometers (laughs) <laughs> but not change the underlying strategic reality. Right. It's like after this election, both sides exerted maximum effort and made, you know, meaningful, but not truly enduring changes in these underlying realities. And so don't we kind of need to figure out another mm-hmm. way through this misery mm-hmm. other than just pouring maximum effort into, to, into often personal and political destruction?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's a good word. I, I said it before, but we're so grateful for how generous you've been with your time and your writing and your perspective. You, you've been a blessing to both Brian and I and I know our audience. I would love for people to know briefly, wh- where can they go to learn more? Can you hit us with whatever social media or websites or books sure. or any of that? Because I'm I'm sure that you've uh, you've wet their appetite.
2: <laughs> well, so I, I have a new book called Divided We Fall. You can find it where books are sold, Amazon, etc. cetera. Um, but you can follow me on the dot com and. I the thing that I write, sort of the gateway drug, <laughs> is uh, my Sunday newsletter. You can sign up for that for free, uh, and every Sunday at six thirty a.m. Eastern, you'll get a, a newsletter. A Sunday, it's called the newsletter is called the French Press. Love it, and uh, I talk about faith and politics and culture a ton in that Sunday newsletter. And if you really like what you read, you can become a member of the dispatch for not just a nominal (laughs) meaningless amount of money. And, um, I, I write three times a week there. We have multiple podcasts. So, um, believe me if, if, you you can get your cup
0: full of content for me <laughs>
2: Absolutely. overflowing
0: and not only not only is the french press fantastic it's also a frustratingly brilliantly good pun and uh <laughs> it was the first time i saw it like upset that i couldn't actually uh think that myself
2: and all credit goes to my wife she came up with
0: it so. oh, Man. well great. our guest today has been attorney political commentator and author david french thank you so much again for joining us today
2: Thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And it's our yep. pleasure. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
1: Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. So, the question is uh, what's the kind of the next iteration of social media? Not just all the internet, but social media. I think we're starting to get a feel for it uh, coming out of the election right now. So, this is at NBC News, and it is a play. It is about a new website or newish, it's not that new, called Parlor. Uh, and the, the article begins this way, or is headlined this way: A Twitter for conservatives, parlor surges amid election misinformation crackdown. Let me read a little bit of this. Okay. As Twitter labeled tweet after tweet from President Trump in recent days, some conservatives decided they've had enough. Trump needs to get active on parlor. They won't censor him there, said one reader. So long, Twitter friends, exiting all big techs and switching to parlor, wrote another. And there were plenty more. Distrust of the major social media platforms among some Trump supporters came to a boil around the election as Twitter and Facebook, already targets of complaints against uh, liberal bias, began uh, to take swift and severe action on election related misinformation. More than a few Republican politicians echoed the sentiments. And so many of them have joined Parler. What is Parler? It's a Twitter-like social media platform that has for two years been a minor destination for conservative politicians and media figures. Like other social media apps, Parler has a feed of posts to scroll through. Posts can be a thousand characters and include links and photos. Users follow one another as well as explore a discovery news tab, which was dominated Tuesday by allegations of election fraud. Its community guidelines fit onto a few pages and address the most uh, basic content problems, criminal activity and spam now parlor is surging. it sits atop the charts of app stores, boosted in large part by supporters who agree with trump 's decision to continue fighting the election the results of the election in the courts and on the internet, Twitter declined to comment on the growth of parlor and while parlor is far from the first social media platform to cater to users who feel that policies regulating hate speech harassment and disinformation have gone too far. It's embraced by prominent conservatives and its sudden influx of users hint at a once informal online dynamic that has recently become more official. There's now the blue internet and the red internet. All right, gonna stop there. I find this, I didn't know of Parler until I read this, uh, but later on the article, it's gonna talk about how Parler uh, has gone from like 4 million users to 9 million users since the election, Uh, And that this is kind of where especially a lot of President Trump's uh, most ardent supporters and the people most likely to believe that there's election uh, nefarious stuff has gone on are going to. But I I want you to weigh in on what they said there, that we are quickly moving towards a red Internet in a blue Internet, the same way we have conservative talk radio and liberal talk radio and conservative cable news news. Uh, and liberal cable news, but now to have it kind of on our social media and that kind of separation happen is kind of a, a kind of a big new step, I think. It it
0: doesn't surprise me though. I to me, I think this I have felt that this is inevitable. Like you mentioned, we have talk radio that caters to our leanings. We have television stations that cater to our leanings. Like that, Th- this to me was the next like logical step. I will say anecdotally. So what you're talking about, parlor spelled E R um i also read elsewhere that a lot of people accidentally have been visiting parlor spelled o r like the word and uh, okay. i believe that's a pornography site so there's Stop. i guess just influx <laughs> yeah cuz people are hearing oh join parlor join parlor people are like okie doke and that's where they that's where they're ending up so that's not the point of this segment but that is certainly
1: <laughs> a, a sub point be careful if you're going to go check right. it out <laughs> yeah no
0: kidding well and part of what you were saying too even about you know after you watch social dilemma There is, I mean, even in a place like Facebook, like we think, I think most people are wise to the algorithms that are happening. You're not seeing all of your friend's stuff, not even close. There's algorithms that are deciding what you do and don't see. And, you know, they're, they're pushing those because for whatever reason, they think those will get the most engagement from you. There's a couple of different categories of engagement. There's obviously positive engagement, like pictures of babies. Everyone everyone loves pictures of babies. Then there's obviously negative engagement, like this guy always argues with this guy. I'm going to make sure they see each other's posts all the time. So it's not <laughs> just one or the other, but it's certainly not uh, unbiased at all. So it, it does kind of make sense to me that people would say, you know what? I'm tired of either being duped over here or being controlled over there or being censored over here. Let's let's find a play, and I again we'll see how long that lasts. Like if you remember, not with the same kind of gusto, but that's sort of what YouTube started off as. It was supposed to be just this really impartial. Upload your videos, have fun, and then you know money gets involved, and then there was ads, and now there's like certain videos that are suggested to you afterwards based on algorithms and research. And I get it, I you know it, it's a company that whatever, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of things I do think start off with this level of pure intent. And then that tends to spiral in some direction unintended eventually. But this as a move to me, doesn't surprise me. It is part of what I think is really concerning about some of the divide that, you know, you and I are talking about all the time, our inability to really hold space for people uh, different than us politically, theologically. And if we just kind of hunker down more and more in our echo chambers like that, that concerns me for sure.
1: speak to that a little bit more my next question to you is going to be like could you make an argument that this is a good thing that hey let's get the people into their you know we we always bemoan all the arguing and all this going on online all right just go be with your people is there anything good about this uh, or is this primarily dangerous and a bad kind of trajectory that we're on now with social media
0: i think that there could be some i mean because there's no there's nothing in parlor's terms of agreements that I, i think is oh you have to have voted this way Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to be it that's that's often how it's being spun right now i don't think that's i don't think that's true so you're you're still gonna have i think at least some diversity of opinion but like in a, in a much more benign sense you know you and i will often talk about the value of having other pastor friends right because mm-hmm. there is mm-hmm. just something that other pastors get like when you're it you could be a total stranger but like you're also a local church pastor like we just get each other in a way that you know maybe people from other professions don't even if they're lifelong friends so i think in that sense it can be helpful if you, you get a group of people together. Like, oh, we get each we think about even like, you know, grief care, things like that. Like you get people, if everyone has walked through a similar tragedy that can be really, really helpful. So I think that there can be value to a point. It just feels like we're already so segmented. There's already such harsh division to like keep hunkering down that trail. Feels like it could be problematic. But yeah, I'm also not so naive yeah. to think that like. Twitter and Facebook have probably manipulated more than any of us even realize. And Correct. I don't want to be a part of that either. So I, I, I do kind of understand some of it.
1: Yeah. The move is to just unplug. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Move, move to the, move. the mountains. Right. One last thing from this article, they talk about the people who've moved to parlor, who are kind of the big people. And they, they used a conservative celebrity, Scott Bayo. Scott Bayo still a celebrity in your book.
0: I mean, does he ever become not a celebrity? I don't know. Happy I mean, days. I guess.
1: He was Chachi. Collie
0: well, still a celebrity. He hasn't done anything since he was eight. Like
1: I think that's still right. <laughs> that's a good call. I think All right, we'll yeah. give we'll give Chachi celebrity status. Still. I'm glad we ended on that note. <laughs> Come back and join us next year on the common good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, We are thrilled to be joined right now uh, by author and pastor Eugene Cho, the author of a new book called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Yeah, Brian, Ian, thank you again so much for having
1: me. It's It's a pleasure to join you. It's really the pleasure is all ours. Why don't you introduce yourself before we jump into the book? Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. So again, my name is Eugene.
3: I'm joining you from Seattle, Washington, Uh, married to my wife for about 24 years. We have three children. And yes, I'm a former pastor. uh, And right now I run two organizations. One is called One Day's Wages in Seattle. It's a humanitarian grassroots organization organization to end extreme global poverty. And I just began a new role as president and CEO of a Christian advocacy organization in DC called bread for the world, where we're seeking to urge our lawmakers to help end hunger in this nation and around the world.
0: Mm. I I love that. Eugene, Brian and I are both actually pastors first, and then we do this radio show on the side. And one of the things that we'll often kind of hear is pushback. Whenever we delve into something that someone deems political, often the, the feedback is, you guys are pastors. Why don't you just talk about spiritual things? Why why are you talking about political things? I've been dying to ask you specifically that question. What do you, what do you say to people who legitimately feel that way?
3: Yeah, no, well, first of all, I thought we were talking about faith and puppies and instead of faith and politics. <laughs> uh, and that's why I joined the call. Uh, well, I guess we have to answer that question. I think it's a good question. And I think when people are saying that they have some reticence about politics. I think what they actually mean is that they're concerned about partisanship, about partisan politics. When pastors or leaders pledge allegiance to a particular party or a politician uh, and have basically blinders on. And I I would also add my displeasure and concern when any Christian pledges allegiance to a party or to a politician. Now, Mm -hmm. having said that, if you take a step back, politics— If you look at any basic dictionary, it's simply the art of government. And any healthy society, it needs healthy politics. A a healthy church needs healthy politics. A healthy organization needs healthy governance. Now, the other thing that I'll say is I'm actually more concerned about pastors who are unwilling to engage these topics. Because if we choose not to, we're actually abdicating the responsibility of discipleship to other organizations or other Mm, voices. mm. And I think people need to understand people are being formed and discipled about their lens and their perspective on politics, but it's usually not through the framework of pastoral leadership, of biblical theology, of the scriptures. So I actually think it's important for pastors, however imperfectly, prayerfully, wisely, and with lots of discernment, engage this topic.
1: Mm. Mm. Uh, Ian and I talk a lot uh, on this show about just what we see going on in the church and around us, uh, around politics, obviously with the election coming up. I'm just curious, how do you see politics right now playing out among Christians in our country?
3: Well, let me pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> if there's a way that you could incorporate some thunder and lightning behind. I mean, let's, let's just be really honest and candid. I, I don't recall anything as intense as what we're experiencing right now. Mm. Uh, I just turned 50, and, and I'm not necessarily someone who cares a lot about politics. Um, I, I take my discipleship very seriously as a follower of Jesus. And I think part of what it means to be a disciple is to seek to be a good citizen here on earth. And so in the, you know, the 25 or 30 or so years where I've had the ability to vote, I don't recall anything so intense as what we're experiencing right now. So if I'm being very frank and candid, there are moments where I feel exhausted. There are times I feel cynical. There are times I feel discouraged. But in the midst of all of these things, I have to remind myself again that when I speak about God's sovereignty, it's not some sort of a theological exercise or jargon or nebulous belief that I have. I believe that God is sovereign, that Jesus is Lord. The Holy Spirit is still at work. And in a fallen, imperfect world, my call as a follower of Jesus Mm. is to as prayerfully and humbly as I can seek to be light and salt. And that means in part to engage the political process. And the reason why I say that is because I do believe that government, that home and church are the three main institutions that God's created in this world. And politics shapes policies that impact people. And oftentimes it involves people that are oftentimes marginalized or forgotten. I'm not suggesting that politics is the most important thing or that it is the answer to all things, because that's clearly not true. But it is important. And so as a follower of Jesus, I'm choosing to engage.
0: You know, I, I think of the, uh, the MLK quote where he says, sure, laws can't change a human heart, but they can keep them from lynching me. And like this idea that I often hear Christians say like, well, that's a sin issue. We need to just simply focus on, on heart issues and not get tied into that. I know that you also write about the kingdom of God, which selfishly, like we're in the middle of preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm, I'm steeped in trying to better understand kingdom of God language and what it means to, to really pledge allegiance to King Jesus and still engage politically. Can you speak a little bit more to how you see the kingdom of God factoring into these conversations?
3: Yeah, there's a theologian that's been very helpful to me. And I suspect that Christians have heard this phrase, but we don't quite know that it should be attributed to this particular theologian. His name was Gerhardus Voss, and he introduced to us explaining the kingdom of God to a phrase called the kingdom already and not yet. The kingdom here and not yet. So as to suggest that we believe, even though this isn't Resurrection Easter Sunday, this upcoming week, we believe the tomb is empty. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is alive. And so he ushers in the kingdom of God, which, which can be uh, introduced as the, the, the reign of God, the flourishing of God. But at the same time, we acknowledge that we're in this in-between space where Christ one day will return to restore all things. So in other words, we can have great comfort and great strength in that truth, but we're also acknowledging that we're living in a space of tension. And so Mm. in this space of tension, we are, as one person says, resurrection people still Mm. living in a broken Friday or silent Saturday world. Uh, Mm. And yet at the same time, we're called to introduce and to keep Uh, seeking and embodying the kingdom of God. I believe in the New Testament, this kingdom of God, this phrase, it's introduced to us 68 times just in the the New Testament. And so it's incredibly important. And it's another reminder to us that while we are citizens here on this earth, that there's nothing wrong with us being patriotic, to be proud. I'm a proud naturalized American citizen but our ultimate allegiance has to be to the kingdom of God. And this kingdom isn't some nebulous place. The kingdom of God has a king Mm. and his name is Jesus. And so we're called to pledge allegiance to Jesus. One last thing that I'll just say about this. I think my concern is that if we're not careful, our politics shapes our theology rather than our theology shaping our politics.
1: That nuance is incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, that is so important. I want to dive into that. How would somebody know if they're getting that getting that backwards? How would I know if my politics are shaping my theology rather than the other way around? Wow, that's a long series uh, a, po- a series <laughs> of podcasts and a series
3: of sermons. And uh, but I think it's an important question. So a couple things that I would say. Uh, Historically speaking, you know, when uh, Nazism emerged into power, it's very sobering and very, very, very uh, scary to consider that historians believe that about 92 percent of that nation were professing Christians, 92 Mm percent. The youth group movement in Germany were very, very monumental in helping Hitler rise into power. I mean. Every single one of us, I don't care what your political inclination is, when you hear that kind of sobering statistic, it should stop every single one of us dead on our tracks. Last year, I led a small group of pastors uh, to a trip to Rwanda to learn, to listen about reconciliation, about justice, about truth telling, about confession. But we were there in part to mark the 25th anniversary of the horrific Rwandan genocide where approximately 1 million Rwandans, including 800 Tutsi minority people, were slaughtered during that genocide, about 100 days after Resurrection Sunday. And what's sobering again is the fact that about 90% of that nation then were professing Christians. So here's the question that I often pose to myself and others. Are we really following Jesus or are we more in love with the idea of following Jesus? One, I think, is cultural Christianity, where we're more enamored about certain power or privileges or platform, or are we really engaged as followers, as disciples to the scandalous, subversive, countercultural kingdom of God led by this person named Jesus Christ? And again, I'm saying this not with any particular bent. I think this should speak and challenge every single one of us.
0: Hmm. We, we've seen so much uh, over the last few months in particular of pastors signing various different documents and pledges and you know, pro-life evangelicals for Biden. And then we're seeing the responses. And then John Piper writes an article and then everyone writes a response to that. And just today, Karen Swallow Pryor essentially said, I, I don't think I in good conscience— uh, can vote for either. I, I'd love to know, how do you help people navigate those waters? Some are some are thinking, well, to not vote at all uh, is completely irresponsible. Others are saying, I can't in good conscience as a Christ follower vote for either. Like, how do you, how do you kind of parse some of those discussions?
3: Well, um, yeah, I mean, th- that's a great question. And I, I really haven't been following all the things happening on the interweb. Sometimes <laughs> I think you have to take a little break <laughs> and spend yes. some time praying and discerning. So this is what I do. Um, and I'm not trying to sound holier than thou, but one of my routines and rhythms during election season is that I try to read the Sermon on the Mount and sp- specifically the yes. Beatitudes. I read it over again and again for a couple of weeks leading up to the election season. I try to again it helps me again, focus on who Jesus is, the kingdom of God. And the last thing that I'll say or the second thing that I'll say is going back to this idea about the kingdom already and not yet. If we're not feeling tension, then something is off with us. We should Mm -hmm. feel tension. We should feel a sense of confliction. We should feel a sense of, gosh, how do I go about this particular process? So if that's anyone that's listening right now, I would say join the club. All of us, I think, are (laughs) in this space. As for others who are giving some guidance and giving people a glimpse, I think they're trying as best as they can give some sort of guidance and encouragement to others. And, and and this is what I experienced when I became a Christian about 30 years ago. I was told back then that if you're a good Christian, you have to vote Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, living in Seattle, I hear the absolute opposite. If you're a good Christian that's mm-hmm. really justice minded, you have to vote uh, the opposite. You have to vote Democratic. And. When we're talking about elections, we shouldn't be so enamored by the presidential election. I think our local elections, our state elections, all of it really, really matters. And so I would encourage yeah. people to really consider, uh, to pray, to actually vote. Because I do think it's an important privilege that we should exercise in our responsibility. And then the last thing that I'll just say is this. We should never reduce our civic responsibility to one vote Every mm. four years. Mm, right. And if that's what we do, then if I can be a little candid and brash, I think we're actually part of the problem. We need to embody our faith every single day. We need to know what it means to love our neighbors. Somebody recently asked me, you know, how do you love your neighbors during a tense election season uh, that might disagree with you? And I answered it as, as, as candidly as I can. I said, the problem is we're asking that question during an election season where it's very, right. very tense. We should be having that conversation outside the election. It should have began several years ago. Mm. And the question I want to ask is, are we still committed to that question the day after the election results, even if your particular candidate isn't elected to the uh, position that you want that person to be elected to?
1: That's good. That's good. I want to talk real fast specifically about your book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. Uh, Fabulous title, by the way. And uh, there's something specific in the book as I was reading it that just kind of blew me away. Could you tell us about the idea of the Make Dinner Great Again movement? I'd never heard of this. And as I read it, I was like, that is brilliant. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that up. It's not my idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a movement called MADA, which stands for Make America Dinner Again. And during the last presidential election, these two Asian-American women were they were distraught by the election results. And they began to ask themselves, gosh, we need to process this. We want to ask uh, people within our social circles that voted for Trump. And to their surprise, they realized, and they were very honest with themselves, they realized that they didn't know anyone that voted for Trump. And directly or indirectly, we all tend to create our own echo chambers, and we're basically speaking to ourselves and listening to others who are simply affirming what we already believe. It kind of leads to an increasingly polarized society and nation. And so they had this idea of putting out on social media uh, their predicament and really wanting to have a safe, honest, candid conversation, invited people to bring a dish and people responded. And Mm. it led to this movement called Make America Dinner Again. And uh, I joined my local Seattle branch. Uh, It was uh, at times uncomfortable and challenging. Uh, We talked about immigration, gun control. We talked about anything and everything under the sun. And we didn't fix or solve everything. But I think it was a reminder to me that there are those who disagree with me on particular views, that they're not Beelzebub, uh, they're not the demon, that they're not people that are horrendous, that are trying Hmm. to destroy our nation or our terrorists, or whatever it might be that sometimes gets thrown around in, a fear-mongering culture. But it also taught me to also be more human. And I think this whole idea about following Jesus, one of the two greatest commandments is to be a good neighbor. And it's important to remind ourselves, you cannot be a good neighbor if you don't know your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And you can't know your neighbor if you're not willing to either A, share your story and B, Listen to your neighbors as well. Jesus, as you know, performs just incredible, supernatural miracles. And the part about his public ministry that most fascinates me and challenges me is that he chooses to have conversations and meals with people that he was not supposed to be seen with, whether it's the Samaritan woman at the well whether it's the woman who's suffering from internal bleeding or the Samaritan leper who chooses to come back. Or I think one of the craziest conversations is when he chooses to invite himself to dine and to speak with Zacchaeus. I can't think of someone who would be more hated in that Jewish culture than a tax collector who chooses to swindle his own people and work for the other villainous political empire. And yet right. Jesus chooses to do this. This isn't licensed for us to be soft about some of the views or convictions that we have, but let's not abandon this commitment to be a good neighbor, yeah. even during this crazy political season.
1: Yeah, that's good. The book is Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. I just finished it. I can't uh, encourage you out there enough to go get the book. Give it a read, especially in this season that we're in. The author of that Mm -hmm. book is Eugene Cho. He's been very gracious with his time. Eugene, thank you so much. We'll have you on again sometime. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, All right. Thank you and blessings, everyone. Absolutely. Well, you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160 Hope for Your Life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromme, and I got to tell you, after that interview with Eugene Cho, uh, I, I think we should have just ended the show at that. <laughs>
0: just this been done. might be the
1: most complimentary of
0: a guest you've ever been.
1: He was so good. You and I were texting during it, as I'm just like, he's phenomenal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't texting. I was listening to the words he was saying. I was multitasking. Focused.
1: Multitasking, <laughs> I'm so. sure. We've, heard, he we've heard you're multitasking. <laughs> Excuse me. Who's here? <laughs> uh, wanted to end the show talking a little bit of encouragement around discipleship and evangelism uh, and found this article at Lifeway. Uh, it's part of his book. It's from his book by J.D. Greer. And the, uh, the article is just entitled this. Be the them. So the them is in quotes. Just be the them why don't you read some of this for us get us into it because i think jd greer gets into some interesting stuff here
0: and i wanted to clarify too we, we wanted to end with just a little bit of encouragement not a lot of encouragement no, we, we want you to ration come back for more right we gotta ration <laughs> this encouragement that's that's a little stockholmy isn't it brian we like, can't just a,
1: we can't just give it all to you on a wednesday
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. oh boy all right be the them by jd greer let me uh let me read how it begins From the time I was a child, the miracle of Jesus that probably most captivated my imagination was his feeding of the 5,000, which, uh, interestingly, is the one that uh, Dallas Jenkins always brings up. Uh, With only five loaves and two fish, something like a Hebrew happy meal, Jesus fed over 5,000 hungry men. There are multiple things we can learn about ministry from that miracle, but one of the most important is this. God has already placed in the hands of his church everything necessary to complete the Great Commission, just as the little boy Uh, Had only to open up his hands and offer up his five loaves and two fish, so have we only to offer up our lives into his hands to see the lost multitudes fed to abundance. The book of Acts demonstrates this over and over again. God uses ordinary people as the tip of the gospel spear. Throughout the book of Acts, ordinary people outpace even the apostles in gospel expansion. The first time the gospel leaves the borders of Jerusalem, it is not in the mouths of the apostles, but ordinary people. Jesus had clearly told his disciples he wanted his gospel preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But by Acts 7, the gospel seems stuck in Jerusalem. The first seven chapters of Acts contains not one story of anyone leaving Jerusalem with the gospel. That all changes with the story of Stephen. Stephen, a quote, ordinary believer, not an apostle, provides such humble, sacrificial service to widows in his community that he is brought before the Sanhedrin to explain what he's doing. His bold testimony to Christ starts a riot, and believers are driven out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. As they go, they carry the gospel with them. That's Acts 8. Luke, the writer of Acts goes out of his way to point out that uh, point out that of those who left preaching the word, not a single apostle was involved. Acts 8, uh, verse 1 and 4 says, And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria, and those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. God accomplished through the preaching of a layman what the apostles had been unable to do <laughs> in seven chapters. I would add, like, Mic drop emoji. That's a pretty that's a (laughs) pretty fascinating. I've taught on the book of Acts multiple times. I don't know that I've ever actually made this specific point with these specific texts. I I love where he's going with this. Can I
1: tell you the I had that exact same thought? Sometimes (laughs) you read things and you're like, I've never seen that when he says. And if you see the article on our Facebook page, you'll see he italicized the words. Except the apostles. Uh, I've never noticed that. Like, yeah, we know they were scattered and all this stuff. And we talk about Stephen, you know, he served tables and this that. But the fact that it explicitly says in Acts 8 there that all except the apostles were scattered and they went about preaching the word. I think that's that's a little really powerful thing that in all my Bible training, I've never noticed.
0: He goes on, he says, later in that same chapter, we see the first international mission strip taken by Philip, another one of these laymen. The Spirit of God guides him to a desert road junction where he meets an Ethiopian government official whom he leads to Christ and baptizes. According to the church father, uh, I always say his name wrong, Arrhenius. Um, I think it's actually, I've, I've been challenged on this, by the way. How do you pronounce that?
1: Uh, I think you're about to challenge me, but I always say it Arrhenius as well.
0: I think it's Irenaeus. I think that's actually okay. correct. I think that's why I always get caught up. Um, <laughs> Too many according to according <laughs> to that guy, this Ethiopian eunuch returned to Sub-Saharan Africa, Africa uh, as its first gospel emissary. One layman, Philip, obedient to the scripture, uh, obedient to the Spirit, was able to get the gospel farther around the world than had all the apostles up to that point. This pattern of, quote, anonymous Christians spreading the gospel continues throughout Acts. As Steve Neal wrote, uh, right, notes in his classic history of Christian missions, nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of those pioneers who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by apostles. Peter and Paul may have organized the church in Rome. They certainly did not found it. This makes me think of a a quote from Eugene Peterson that I keep coming back to. Um, I think it's because I'm rereading the pastor. I think that's where I read it. He said, the pastor is at his best when his work goes unnoticed. Mm. And that's always, just in different seasons of my life, I've always found that convicting, especially in this age of like, make a name for yourself, and like you were saying even earlier, uh, engage on social media, and grow your church, or you know, none of those things are evil, obviously, but there seems to be in a lot of ways, in a lot of circles, uh, a strong effort away from anonymity. And, And part of what Greer's saying here is like, well, it seems like the foundation of the church was almost like built on anonymity and how counter that runs to so many of our instincts.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I also think what he's getting at here is how many of us pastors, but also just to use his title, lay people, I uh, yeah. feel like I could never do anything. God could never use right. me to do anything. I'm too ordinary to use his words here. I'm too, uh, he uses, like you said, that mega church pastor with a huge following and a big stage. And sure, he uses those people. Or Billy Graham, you know, we, we kind of put all these people up there. But you know what, little old me, I'm just going to go to church. And, uh, and there's no mission for me to undertake. There's nothing. And I really think Greer does a masterful job here at saying that is just not the story of the book of Acts.
0: And I think that's a, a good reminder. I I wonder if if someone's pushback might be well yeah, I can totally celebrate that that's how God did it then, but he wants to do it through celebrity pastors now. Like what would you <laughs> what would you say to the person that things like, yeah, I totally agree with your exegesis of that text. Yep. But that was a different time and much like, you know, even our our TikTok segment, God is is using new methods, new methodologies. Nowadays, what do you what do you say to that?
1: Yeah, I would ultimately say it's the same Holy Spirit at work in and through people. Snap, Uh, (laughs) yeah, and that does God use celebrity pastors? Uh, Yes, I hope so. Uh, But uh, no, I think we just see anecdotally all around us just ordinary people uh, loving their neighbors, loving their family, being obedient to the Word, speaking the truths of the gospel. That that's how lives are changed. I love what Greer does here. It's another spot that I haven't even noticed. He goes to Acts chapter 11 and he says, there's a pastor. He says, he only says that the Lord's hand was with them. Uh, And then he uses this word them. He said, as my friend Vance Pittman says, that is Luke's way of saying a bunch of dudes whose names I won't mention because you wouldn't recognize them (laughs) and won't hear anything about them anyway. They are the kinds of people who get listed in the credits of a movie as bystander number three. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) He says it was Apollos, a layman, another them who carried the gospel to Ephesus. And Greer goes on to say, thank God for them. Throughout Mm. Christian history, the gospel has nearly always spread and stuck because ordinary people like you carried the gospel wherever they went. Ordinary people are the tip of the gospel spear. Again, the question is no longer if you are called to leverage your life for the Great Commission, only where and how. However God gifted you, he gifted you with the Great Commission in mind. And he ends this way. Maybe nobody in Christianity knows your name, but you can be part of the most powerful and effective mission force ever established. Team them. That's good, man, man. When I read that, I said, I, not only do you like I want my people of my church to know that, but as I read that, I'm like, I needed to hear that today. <laughs> like yeah, totally. I, totally. I needed to hear that today. And so, again, hopefully that's an encouragement for those of you out there going, Ah, am I too ordinary to matter, to matter in the kingdom of God? And hopefully these words uh, that J.D. Greer gave to us today uh, remind us that no, you're not. You're important and reminds us how it is the gospel has spread from the beginning. So hopefully that's encouraging for you as we go about the rest of our day today. Well, if you missed any of our show today, uh, head on over to the podcast. You can get your podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Again, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, We're glad that you joined us today. Uh, We will be back at it from 4 until 6 tomorrow. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.